If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back to Explorinate, folks. This is Battle Mode, and this week I'm joined by Drexy. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going pretty good, sir. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. That's what you always say, so <laughs> I'm just assuming that that's your, that means you're okay. And uh, also joining us this week, we've got Lucid Tactics. Hey. How are you guys doing? Ha- going pretty good, mate. And uh, Drexy's not too bad. <laughs> always not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this week, uh, the reason why we've got Lucid on is because we were thinking about what it is that makes an interesting game loop that keeps players engaged when it comes to strategy games. And we thought Lucid is a good person to talk to about this. We wanted to get Rob on as well, but Rob can't make it tonight, unfortunately. So it's just the three of us, I'm afraid. This is actually the second time we've recorded this. We had a bit of a mishap with the recording the first time around, but that's actually... It's worked to our favor a little bit because it allowed us to kind of choose some of these ideas over previously. We can come back at it with and be a little bit more accurate with what we're going to say. Um, so, Lucid, why don't you tell us about this idea you have of uh, game pressure when it comes to strategy game attention? Yeah, I, I think and maybe a good way to kind of open this conversation up to is that I, I've had the feeling and, you know, because you and I have talked before, I think y'all have had the feeling too, where you're playing a strategy game and it's just like you're not sure why it just isn't fun. <laughs> Sure. It's like there's systems that are cool, there are graphics that are cool, but it just isn't fun. You lose interest. And I think the question is kind of why is that the case? What makes things fun and not in a strategy game? I think in a like a first person shooter or something, it's kind of more obvious what's going to keep your attention. Maybe maybe I'm wrong there, but in a strategy game, in some ways, it's like doing work. You know, you're like thinking and you're planning and you're assigning. And it's like, what, what, what? makes that kind of activity fun and so anyway that's what i'm interested in exploring today with you guys and then for pressure i think pressure is just probably the one of the most important elements for it because if there's no pressure in a game and so what do we mean by pressure pressure is like if you don't do things that are smart you're gonna lose right or bad things are gonna happen yeah and if you don't have any pressure on one end of the spectrum it's like a sandbox Right, you just go and you do stuff. You're, you're playing in God mode or whatever, and you just make things, and you know, that's fine, I guess. But kind of all things are equal, and you can't be good at that kind of game. Really, you just exist. It's kind of like a, I don't know, I don't know. It's some, it's some kind of weird world you live in where you kind of do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Would you say that um, pressure kind of requires? So we've got this idea of the sandbox game, and I always found that sandbox kind of play eventually became boring and you know mm-hmm. the first time that i can actually remember this was when i figured i think it was playing starcraft or something one of these kind of games where you know an rts where i figured that you could you could set the, the game up and play against yourself essentially you know just have a uh you know two sides of a two sides of the game playing or it might have even been a turn strategy turn-based strategy game but you know or playing yourself at chess this kind of thing eventually you realize oh you can do all these cool stuff build all the best units you know you can try all these strategies but there's no challenge so right. for me i think part of pressure involves there being some kind of external thing to you that's actually pushing against you right 
Right. Yeah. I think it'd be hard to play against yourself in a game because, you know, like you can't divorce yourself from the information you have about the other position. Sure. And what they're going to do. And um, with a sandbox game as well, like let's say something like SimCity, once you've learned the mechanics of a, of a sandbox game, you know, like a, let's say a city builder like SimCity, right. once you've learned all the mechanics of it, really you are playing against yourself. And they're, I mean, they're, they're, some of those games do have certain pressure elements in order to kind of push, right. to try and play harder. So SimCity, for example, had limits with finances and that kind of thing. But for the most part, you know, with these kind of real proper sandbox games, you, you know, once you've, once you've understood the mechanics of what's going on, then again, it's, it's that you're playing chess against yourself, essentially. Right. And I guess that's the fun part of SimCity. SimCity is a great example of that. So one interesting idea is the disasters, right? If, if a disaster happens and you cause it, like you click your, you type the disaster button or whatever, then you were essentially as prepared for it as you were going to be. You know, like it wasn't, you weren't preparing for some kind of unknown thing that then happened. And that is, that becomes a test for everything you've done to that point. Like, have I made my city strong enough to survive, you know, a big fire? And it's more just like you chose to have this happen. And then, you know, the results of it play out. But, you know, if something bad happens to you in like a game of dominions or, you know, some other kind of like multiplayer strategy game, like something happens that's really bad. You got attacked by this big force. Like that's something you've been preparing for for like four or five turns. And that's it's a test when that happens, you know. Um, and so then when it works, you feel really good about it. Like when you successfully anticipate, you know, some really bad thing that's going to happen in the game and then you you block it. I think that's probably like one of the major dopamine hits in a strategy game is anticipating bad stuff and then successfully blocking it. This is exactly what tower defense games are made of, right? I mean, that right. kind of idea that you know that something is coming, you've got to then build your defenses and then this wave, you know, these waves of enemies come in and they're... It's not just tower defense games that kind of do that, really. I guess you could look at any sort of RTS or strategy game as having that kind of element to it, where you know that the game has a sort of ebb and flow. And mm-hmm. at a certain point of the game, you've got to be in a certain position. Right. And it's, you're, you're then testing yourself against either another player or against the AI or against that kind of that unfolding of the game's mechanism so that you know where you're at at that specific point. And if you lose, you can kind of go, well, I lost at this point, you know. Right. Well, and it's cool too. I like that you mentioned tower defense because there is a lot of pressure in tower defense. And if you, you know, like a lot of strategy games, you'll hear like macro and stuff like, you know, have good macro, spend all your money. But spending all your money in a tower defense is not sufficient. Like you have to build the right kind of towers and put them in the right kind of places or you will lose in any decent tower defense. Right. Sure. And that is good pressure. Right. Because you're having to do things. It's possible, though that you make the tower defense so hard that there's literally only essentially, you know, with some minor variations, one path, one way to survive it, that that setting or whatever. And if you get it to that point, it's more like a puzzle or there's a single solution and you have to figure out what it is. Yeah, and I that can be kind of fun, but it's also restrictive. You don't get to be very creative. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to you knowing the game and you testing yourself based on those rules you know on how your strategy works against uh, said game's rules. I think this is an interesting way to introduce another idea then, because Lucid Lucid mentioned this. We've got the idea of a sandbox game, and then we've also got this kind of idea of a puzzle, right? And there's a kind of interplay, and some might say kind of a friction when it comes to strategy game design. And, you know, I mean, I'm just talking as a player, by the way. I I don't want to make any illusions that I'm some kind of game designer. 
I, I like to talk about games a lot, but I'm I'm not going to claim any expertise in this area. But um, as, as a games player, I've identified that we have these games that are very much sandboxy kind of oriented games, and there are some games that are much more you you know the the puzzle set for you to some extent. There's a very smooth gradient of mixes of games in between those. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. I think those are like the two hardest ends of the spectrum. Is like the sandbox and the puzzle, and there's a ton of things in between. I was kind of I was actually sitting here while you were talking. I was thinking, what would RimWorld be like? On one hand, it's got a ton of sandboxy elements. On the other hand, it's got a lot of real pressure it puts on you. Um, and the pressure is really random. So it feels like, because I think something that uh, Drexy was saying was, once you learn the game systems, you're fine. But I feel like in RimWorld, once you know the game systems, you're probably mostly fine, but you still have to sort your way through all these different weird scenarios you never thought would come up. Like the permutations of all the ways that the game can arrange itself is really high. Yeah, I think uh, that's a test of what a good game is, whether it can throw something that you're not expecting at you and then you having to respond to what's happening in the game. If you just know all the systems and you can respond to it and you know the response to everything, then what's the point really? It's so yeah, it's, it's, it is a fine gradient. And I guess what we're asking here, what is the, the perfect game between pure sandbox and a pure uh, puzzle game or whatever the other thing Ben was saying? Yeah, I was going to say that I think that roguelike games i know they're not strictly strategy games and i think a lot of people would kind of like wince if i i called them that but roguelike games kind of get this sort of thing right where you have there's certain there's certainly puzzle like elements to the game but it's also it's it's kind of pushing into that sandbox thing as well with the procedural generation so there's very often like you might be in in a certain room let's say in a dungeon of a roguelike and there's probably like there might be a 50 different ways to get out of the predicament that you are in uh, because you know depending on how deep the game mechanics are and how wide they are but the set of all other possible actions minus those 50 are going to kill you right so you have you know that's that's a kind of mm-hmm. form of pressure in a sense but also you know where where you've got this large like environment within which to play certain strategy games do that and i think that i think some strategy games kind of have this kind of this kind of cross like rimworld for example is very much kind of got roguelike elements to it it has that procedural generated storyline thing going on where you have this storyteller who throws you these situations so you've got your sandbox element you know the city builder side of thing which mm-hmm. you can get very good at but because the there's so many different things that can go wrong in that game and do frequently that you know it's very very difficult to kind of get good at it i'd say because i think yeah. you know there's there's so many things that can go wrong and the game is uh, Tyne and sylvester deliberately designed it so I think he calls it a story a storyline generator rather than a game. I think he, that's how they approach that. And I think that that's quite an interesting concept because I think in that one, the pressure is the gameplay, very much so, along with the sandbox. But the, the pressure is really what drives the game because, yeah. you know, sandbox games get boring eventually, I think. At least yeah, I, I personally like imagine RimWorld without any hard stuff, like without any of the bad events, like without any of the, like people couldn't get sick and their mood couldn't be horrible and... Then it would be so, like a pure sim, but you could still build the same base. You know, maybe there's a button you could trigger people to attack you to test your defenses. But like that, that game would suck. So pressure is really, really important. So I guess um, the question is, can a game, a single player game ever give you the same similar sort of pressure that multiplayer games can? 
because, you know, with a multiplayer game, you're playing against humans and sometimes humans do strange and stupid stuff sometimes, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but a computer won't, won't always be like, I just can't see how ever we're ever going to be able to get, unless AI, like, I mean, real AI actually comes into being. But then again, a real AI will probably be super efficient. So I don't know. That's, I think that's always been a problem really is uh, how can single player games ever give you that sense of pressure that a multiplayer game can? Well, I mean, I think like RimWorld, we were just talking about it. They, there's definitely fun pressure in that. And like, I'm trying to think of games that I've been, that I've played that have fun pressure. So one of them is like Eodor, Eodor Genesis. And there you're always trying to figure out what little fights you can take so you can get some kind of upgrade and there's risk you're weighing. And yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there's a ton of things where your decisions matter and it's not trivial how you're going to, you know, to use your roguelike kind of analogy where there's 50 things you could do, but a thousand things you can't do. Um, and picking which of the 50 you want to do, sorting your way through that can, I think, be a lot of fun. When there's a bunch of different situations coming up, you know, th- there's a ton of replayability. I think with single player games, you know, if we're talking about the single player versus multiplayer thing, it's single player games are always going to struggle to achieve the kind of novelty that you'll get when you're facing an, against another human player. Um, but I think that games can be designed in such a way that they can introduce novelty, you know, and uh, complexity which can increase the you know the chances that the player is surprised by something. So again I'll, I'll use a I'll use an example of a of a roguelike. So you know the game NetHack. NetHack's really really complex and the the developers have put loads of effort into making it so that every object and every spell and every monster they've tried to figure out every way that all these different things can inter- interact with one another and they've tried to code in you know a a response. So for example if you you know, if you dip the, the dagger into the potion of acid, the dagger disappears. That won't happen in most games. You know, like they don't really have that kind of level of of complexity. So you, that's one way of doing it with a single player game. You can you can spend decades, like literally decades, right. like it is with NetHack or Dwarf Fortress, for example, uh, programming in all these interactions between your environment, you know, the, the play field that you know, the player is experiencing the game in, and then kind of see what happens, right? So there's a famous there's the famous story of there's the bug in uh, Dwarf Fortress where the cats the cats are randomly dying and they can't figure out why it is the cats in the are dying. So it turns out that the cats are uh, the, the dwarves when they when they so anyone who doesn't know right Dwarf Fortress is like a colony simulator very much like uh, Rimworld and the dwarves when they finish doing their job they go they need to go and drink because that's what they do they they prefer drinking and eating so they 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 uh, they go and they take a drink but then they when they when the player asks them to go back and do another job, they just toss their jugs on the floor, right? Now, the the game is so complex that the, the alcohol mugs were falling on the floor. The, the booze was spilling out onto the floor. The cats were walking through and they were, and they were walking through the footprints or through the puddles that were left. And the cats, they, they'd actually programmed in footprint mechanics. So the cats, were, what they were doing, they were, they were paddling through the alcohol and then they were licking their paws afterwards because he'd even programmed that in. And then because he'd not considered the alcohol weight ratio of the cat compared to what a dwarf is, <laughs> they were dying of alcohol poisoning. Oh, so the cats were like vomiting and then dying. Yeah. And it took them ages to figure out this random, why a cat's randomly dying bug. And that's what it was like that. That's like what you would call emergent gameplay. And there is nothing else like it on the planet, really. I think Dwarf Fortress is the, 
you know, is the most complex, most simulation-like game that's ever been made. I'm just telling that story just to hammer home the point. It's incredibly difficult to do that. It takes a genius and, you know, multiple geniuses, perhaps, and also decades of programming time. I think that's very, very difficult. One of the things that kind of both of y'all been talking about, I think Drexy might have mentioned it first, was some games, if they're sandboxy and you understand the systems... And the whole thing is basically building something and you have to understand the systems to build it correctly. And then once you understand it, then kind of the game's over, right? Like you may have 50 more hoops you need to jump through, but it's like you're just jumping through hoops that are kind of obvious, right? Because you understand the mechanics, the systems, and then you just kind of go through and do it. And then what I think is interesting about that is some games, you understand the mechanics and then you're done. Other games, you understand the mechanics, and now you're just getting started. Sure. And some of the reason I think that is, is so like in multiplayer games, once you you need to understand the mechanics even just to play, and then you get into all the game theory, and I should do this, they'll do that stuff, you know, as a result of, you know, you can't even play the game if you don't understand the the systems. Sure. But then there's also the thing you were talking about where you may understand all the systems individually. But have you thought about how all the systems interact with each other? And that may be so deep that there may the player base may not have figured it all out yet, which and I think like you're saying, that's also like super complicated to code and develop because each of those interactions can also be a bug. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think I mean, I, I, I think you're talking about Dominions to some extent here, because that's one of the that's certainly one of the strategy games that will come to my mind when I think of a game that is you know, Dwarf Fortress-ish, you know, I mean, I'm not going to draw that comparison too closely because I don't think they, they fit too closely in that respect. But uh, certainly with the amount of time that and develop, development time that's gone into the games, they're probably roughly equivalent, I'd say, at least yeah. with, I mean, Dominions has been in production since 1999, I think, 2000. And I think that, you know, not far yeah. off the same for Dwarf Fortress. So if you, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, so that's just learning the systems. I mean, I think this was something that we we were talking about last time or I might have brought up and there are certain like when it comes to puzzle type games right I'm I'm really not like a min max brain person even though I've got you know kind of like my my chosen field of study is engineering it's an engineering kind of related thing and you'd thought that I would be really very much into the min max style and you know trying to figure out all the puzzles and writing down all the mathematical formulas for things but I really not like that in fact I find that that kind of gameplay really off. I like that kind of gameplay. It appeals to me, but I don't enjoy min-maxing things to the point of it becoming just completely, you know, just like like I'm back at school. Right. And I know other, like I, we talked to Tortuga Power, who is an engineer, and he's very much a min-max gamer. And he says that he he doesn't really like playing games if he's not able to figure out kind of early on what what all the mechanics are doing. So when there's obscure mechanics, it can, you know, it's not always his favorite thing. I'm the other way around. Like I quite like, the fact that I don't always know exactly what's going on in Dominions. And I, I like Shadow Empire as well, because there's a lot of opaque stuff that kind of goes on under the hood. So it's not, I never feel like that if I just, if I learn all the formulas, do a load of practice that I can just master the game. Cause then I'm bored. I don't like, I don't like puzzle games that much. I do, once, once I've solved the puzzle, like, you know, when right. I, when I learned the algorithm for doing a, a Rubik's cube, what's the point in doing the Rubik's cube? Cause now I know the algorithm. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of, yeah. and that, now that's not, not everyone's like that. I know that. I realize this, but I definitely see this dichotomy in the gaming community, especially because I look, I, I lurk and I'm kind of active on quite a lot of different games forums, and I see min. Bra- I, I can spot a min max man a mile off. 
<laughs> like I can right. I can tell them from the comments, and they really dislike it when you can't minimize everything down to. And I'm and I'm being hyperbolic here because there's no there's no like perfect min max man, but you you get the idea, right? Generally speaking, they 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 don't like it when there's extraneous stuff in games. They're really not into the fluff side of things. They want to know all the formulas for everything so that they can find, like in distant worlds, for example, they want to know exactly how many lasers do I need in order to be able to take down a certain type of laser shield in you know in X seconds. And right. I think that's one side of gaming, and then you've got the other side, which is you know pushing more towards the sandbox end of the spectrum where people are kind of content to kind of just sort of play with what they've got. Yeah. I, I think the problem, I think with the sandbox, like the sandbox is fun because you can be creative, right? Like there's not as many rest- that I think that's part of this whole discussion is that if you have, like if to beat the boss, you need to solve the puzzle and the, there's only one or two solutions to the puzzle and you have to min max things out to the nth degree so that you come up with the perfect build to kill the boss with the limited resources you have. Like that's probably not very fun. Or it's for I think for a lot of people would say that's not as fun. Some people, like you're saying, they're the min max people. They'll love being the only person in the whole freaking gaming universe that has solved the way to beat the boss, right? But a lot of people, I don't think, don't find that fun. But you know, again, the other end is you know it's a sandbox and it doesn't matter. So I think the fun thing is this space in between where. You know, Dominion's multiplayer is a lot like this, where you're granted imperfect information of a very serious problem, and you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it and survive, and there's really complex systems to draw from. So the number of ways you could go about solving it, like there's probably at least 50 good, decent ways you could go about trying to solve it. And they're all going to cost different and have different risks. And so like once you understand the systems... That's really where the game starts. And then it's like, okay, well, what do I want to do? And there's still a ton of space for being creative. And there's so much uncertainty in the game because, you know, let's say somebody attacked you and they have this big army sitting here and you're like, this is the exact perfect response to that army. Well, like, you don't know where the army's going to move. You don't know if they're going to reinforce it. So you need to account, you know, there's a ton of uncertainty. So you can't even perfectly min-max it. You're dealing in this nebulous space of uncertainty. and that grants the game like a uh, it, it, or it grants the player basically a lot of creativity because there isn't a single right answer. Yeah, I think, I think the, the thing, same thing's probably also like that in RimWorld. Like it, RimWorld is a bit nebulous too, like where you're managing obscure risks. I think the thing with uh, Dominions is A, the races are very asymmetrical, which is a good thing, which a lot of strategy and forest games tend to fall down on. And B, you can't always have the answer for everything. So, for example, if you, I've played a game in Dominions where I've known what race everyone's playing. Say, for example, there were three races that relied heavily on lightning damage or air damage. So I've, I've tailored my bless to them. But suddenly I'm up against, say, Citis, which is using a lot of poison. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I have to think, well, hmm, look at how can I counter that? And maybe I can summon a mage that has high enough nature for me to put up a poison resist bless. But that may include me having to research into a, deep into a tree, which I, I don't really want to. So you always got to be making these calculations in that game of whether your research or what, what summons you have, is it worth doing that at this point in time to counter said player you're against? Because... You may not have information on who you're playing against, but you never know 
when you're going to be up against said player, really. So it's, it's, I think that's the main thing that makes that game really interesting is you've always got to be like on your toes and thinking like 20 turns ahead. Mm-hmm. But of course, you don't always have the best answer. You just got to do the best you can with the tools you have at the time. I think with Dominions as well, like there's a there's a kind of fog of war involved, isn't there? And then both of you have just kind of touched on this. And like Drexy's just said, there is no single answer for every possible situation. So I think part of the fun of Dominion specifically comes into you are you are learning the game systems. You get to the point where you know you come off your, your you take the training wheels off, and then you're suddenly able to kind of you know you're you're suddenly swimming in this big pond with these all these big fish and you know these big sharks <laughs> and you are having to delve in to your stores of knowledge. Lucid did a really great video, actually. And I think it was a video on, it's like the four stages of Dominion's kind of mastery. Do you, I forget what yeah. it's called now. Yeah, that Lucid. was a good one. I think that it was, was like really, player development or something like that. That's it. That's a great video. And that apply, that doesn't just apply to Dominion's necessarily. You can, I think you could take that principle and apply it to other games as well, you know, um, other multiplayer games particularly. But, you know, you have this... Yeah, where you're first learning the route, the rules, then you're getting to the point where you can kind of win a few games. And then by the end of it, you are, you are knowing so much about the game that you're getting to become, you, you're starting to involve flair, creativity. And I'll, I'm going to hand over to Lucid because Lucid will be able to explain his video. But I, I just want to say that I think all the stages that he, that he proposed in this kind of process, in this journey, they're all exceptionally engaging and they're all characteristic of what i would want from a strategy game you know but it's always keeping me engaged yeah i i think i i'm not sure if i'm gonna remember them all exactly right so i probably switch it around because it's just an idea in my head and then i got turned into a video at some point but you know at the start players like you just are you don't it's a big complicated game you don't really know much of anything but you start to understand how the basic game mechanics work like how turns work how you move units around what all the stats do how they kind of basically work you understand the bless system you you basically understand how to play the game you know like you can log in and do your turns right and just understanding that and doing that well that takes a while you know like that's kind of like the learning curve just to even start playing and then so that's like phase one phase two is okay you know all that but now you take one specific nation and you read a bunch of guides on it, and you actually understand what this nation is supposed to do. And by supposed to, you know, in the eyes of the people who wrote the guide, and maybe you have an idea what Illwinner was thinking when they made the game, but you know what the nation should do. You know, like, these are the major timings this nation hits. These are the, the kind of big spells they can put up at different points in the game. And so you're, you're like a capable, let's say you learned how to play Satis, because that got mentioned earlier, the like Egyptian-themed lizard nation. You are now a Satis player. Congratulations, right? But then you go and you fight somebody and you have no idea really what their nation does, <laughs> right? So you go fight them and like you play Satis really well, but you're playing, you know, you're a hammer and everything looks like a nail and you're just out there doing what Satis can do well. And when you run into something that Satis does not do well against, then you just die because <laughs> that's how the game works. And so the next level player is like the person who knows not only what Satis does, but they know what all the nations do, or most of the nations. And once you know what all the nations do, then you start to understand, like, you know, this would be a good or a bad war. Uh, if I'm going to fight this war, these are the things I would need. And then you don't make, like, you'll learn when you're fighting a nation as you're getting your butt kicked. Like, these are all the things I need to do. But it's too late because you've probably lost the game by that point. So, you know, the next level is, like, when you understand all the other nations. And then the final level was 
kind of like when you become a Jedi, right? When you not only know all the nations and the matchups and how all the mechanics work, but you've figured out this deep bag of tricks where you're you're able to like finesse things that would normally t- take twice the amount of resources. You know, you know, it's just like you've been playing and you've absorbed all these weird little inter- interactions. This kind of like the the cat licking their paw in the the dwarven brewery and getting drunk. Like you know all those tricks and you're able to kind of abuse them. And you know, combine that with you know, maybe being really good at diplomacy too or something. And I don't know. That was like the fourth. But I think that actually maps somewhat onto our discussion because if you're thinking about it from a sandbox perspective, I feel like a lot of games, you don't get to have that kind of development because you learn the basic systems and these are the things I'm supposed to do. And then you're done. Like, congratulations. You know, <laughs> you, you know how to play the game. You win. I found and- that one of the issues with the original Distant Worlds universe was that um, the game was so complex that you kind of needed a guide to play it. And it was, especially in a game like that, and we're find- kind of finding this with Distant Worlds 2 now, you know, like when you've got a game that is not only exceptionally complex, doesn't have that many players, and also is a little bit buggy. It's dead hard to figure out whether something is a bug or whether it's working as intended, but you just don't understand it. And mm-hmm. I think so one of the ways that people got around this with Distant World Universe was to read guides. The problem is with reading a guide for a game like that is, especially for certain things, let's just say ship design, right? I found that once I'd figured out what somebody else had decided arbitrarily was the op- the optimal way to play. I found it very difficult to break out of that once I'd, I'd kind of gone into that thing. And I feel like the the sort of sandboxy exploration side of that game had kind of been ruined for me a little bit. I don't really get that with Dominion so much because I find that because the gameplay is much more dynamic in the sense that Distant Worlds has a certain trajectory that you know that you will play. And depending, and it can be it can be drastically different, way more so than any other forex game, I'd say, um, in the sense of, you know, depending on how you're starting, who your neighbors are, relative technologies levels that you've got, it can, um, you know, resources, all this stuff, it's all really, really meaningful in the game. Whereas in other forex games, it's kind of just like polish, right? Whereas in distant worlds, it really means something. But I think in Dominions, it's um, because you've got the human element, and it's the game is even more complex with regards to the the sheer volume of content that you're actually dealing with. Uh, you, you can't just look at a guide and figure out how to play it. You never get that spoiled for you. You can read all the guides that have ever been written for all the nations and still not be a good player, I think. Yeah. And that's that's something you know that's probably unique to Dominions. Is the game over when you understand the systems or is it just starting? And I have a feeling, I don't know this, but I have a feeling that, because I've, I've had Distant Worlds and I've been trying to get into it. Y'all got, there's a ton of people on YouTube doing stuff on it. It got me super hyped. But I've been trying to get into it, um, and I, I've struggled. But if you understand the systems, do you under you know is the game mostly over? And I have a feeling that with Distant Worlds too, if you know the systems and you know basically what you're supposed to do, I feel like you probably just win the game. But I, I could be totally wrong about that. This is coming from somebody who doesn't know the systems. <laughs> well, well, we, I mean, sorry to interject, but with uh, especially with, with Distant Worlds. The beauty of that game is actually how you uh, set up the game. I'm sure you've noticed how many screens you have to go through before you start a game, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you can tailor the game to your skill level. It's not just turning an sure. AI onto hard and it cheats or whatever. Like Ben did actually a, quite a good video of an idea of how to set up the game, where basically there's sort of a a gradient of di- difficulty across the map. So you start out on the outer edge and you have like P1, 
people sort of similar to your tech level. And as you, as further out you go, the harder and harder the enemies are until like he ended up putting like a really old empire quite far away from you and which sort of set up the game to be like an end game boss. So yeah, a lot of it's down to how you set up the game. And it's not like, like I said, it's not just, um, Oh, just make this guy really hard. It's what tech level you start at compared to them and where these different empires are in relation to where you start. You can actually uh, build the game around how you want to play and how experienced you are. And uh, another thing that we sort of talk, spoke about on the Distant Worlds 2 podcast is now they've added firing arcs onto ships. It's added. I don't think a lot of players have actually realised it's added quite a lot of complexity to the way the ships work, depending on what empire you work play with, because they all have different firing arcs now. I think someone was saying, like, being able to put your PD on the back of your ships and making your ships kite away so you can shoot down their fighters and stuff like that. Hmm. So, yeah, the game's a lot deeper. I don't think anyone's really figured out how deep this game's going to be. But, yeah, I think the main thing with Distant Worlds is the the galaxy setup is the big point in the game. I just want to jump in and say, if you've watched that video that I've done, just be a bit careful. I set the le- the difficulty actually a little bit severe on that, and I've been playing that 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 kind of map several times, and I can't win it. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> like it's it's quite common for one of even one of my relatively well developed neighbors, but no way near like the, the toughest you know empire in the galaxy will just kind of like suddenly go. No, I'm going to take all your planets, <laughs> and that's it. You, you, you. It's kind of game over because you, you don't really have the technology. So, if anybody's watched that, um, I just advise you just to tech, just adapt. Tech- I, I, I adapted it. I made actually made a smaller map, and I, I did scale it back a bit. It was, a, it was a bit too much. <laughs> it was fierce, yeah. I, I think it was just an idea because the whole point of that video wasn't to give you a, a preset to play with. It was entirely to say, look, there is more to this game than just put everybody on pre warp start. And then have this slow start when everyone's getting, oh, the game's slow at the start, it's boring. It's like, you, it's it really is what you make of it. And I don't think it's, like games like Master of Orion were really, really nicely balanced. And they had, like messing with the, the game settings really, really did change the game, but not in a huge way like it does in Distant Worlds. That was more for, you know, if you really want to challenge yourself in a big kind of way. I think Distant Worlds really is, this. what I was doing there, I was, if we're talking in the terms that we're discussing, Distant Worlds very much is a sandbox game, but I was trying to inject a puzzle into it a little bit, you know? I wanted it to push it more towards the puzzle side of things where it's like, okay, how are you going to deal with the the well-developed Boscara nation that that are really, really aggressive? They've got better technology than you. Uh, But there's a a cluster of you and like three three other groups that you could potentially be friends with. How do you want to play that? Do you want to take them over? Do you want to play it diplomatically? Do you want to try and befriend the Boscarans, which is always possible? So yeah, it's just... Distant Worlds is a funny one, and yeah, we're still figuring out, you know, quite where Distant Worlds Two is going to be. But it's pretty much the same game as Distant Worlds Universe, and I think that if it, if it ends up being like that one, it's going to be another game where I think that just to go back to Lucy's original point about it, you can learn the systems and it does make the game easier. But it, that if you enjoy the game, then that should inspire you just to kind of like play with it a little bit more and set up these systems. I saw Daz Tactic doing some crazy stuff with Distant Worlds Two already, like he. He made a game with a really tiny universe and just put four empires in the front, set them so that they'd got, um, you know, slightly more advanced tech, 
and then um, have them just all duking it out like this kind of crazy battle royale. It's actually a really interesting game. It was like I, I thought was, oh God, this... was he one of those or was he watching? Yeah, he was one of them. No, so he was like four. There was like four. He was one of four empires, and they only had a small amount of colonies to fight over, and like drastically limited resources. And yeah. uh, it was it was amazing. It was like this crazy, really fast paced, difficult game where he was having to micromanage all the battles. And as Drexy said, the, uh, the the I think people are not really if they're trying to play it like Stellaris, where you you select a fleet and then click on another fleet and then. Now that's not the way to play it. You really got to you really got to play it a bit like an RTS and really plan how your you know your ships are going to come in and consider the firing arcs and that. Kind of getting off the topic a little bit, but you, I'm just. Well, kinda... I, I think it's actually it's related because it's. I mean, it's one of the things I didn't like. I didn't. I you know, distant worlds. It you can set all sorts of different things AI, and if you're a noob like me and you haven't read all the guides, you don't. You might read a guide real quick on which ones to set AI. I think I watched uh, Tortuga's videos and set some things AI based on what he recommended. Sure. But, but then you know I did that, and then I'm getting all these prompts, and I'm kind of accepting most of them, but rejecting some. And I, I hadn't figured out at the beginning how to drag around and select units because you can't. You have to enable that in options or something. And I, basically, I didn't even really know what I was doing. But I, the thing, is, how it connects, is there's some pressure in the game. I'm sure. I didn't have any idea how I was doing against the pressure. I played for three hours and I had no idea if I was doing good or bad until somebody told me you can go look at like a score graph where you look at relative powers. And I saw I was like stronger than I, you know, I hadn't explored too much of the universe, but I was stronger than like two of my neighbors and I was way weaker than a third. And that meant there were other people out there in the universe that were probably like six times stronger than me. Sure. (laughs) So, but I think that's an important thing of when you're designing a game, it's like, I mean, I think there's always a question of like, how much do you actually design it for new players? You know, like at some point, the new, the players have to learn something too. You're not going to hand feed them everything. But you want to have, in my opinion, some kind of regular interaction with that pressure. Like if that pressure is too distant and far away, like, and I know that's kind of like what the pirates are supposed to be there for. I, I bought them all off and I think you were coming in saying you never bought the pirates. Not anymore, but- no. It's, <laughs> they, it doesn't seem to work. They It just makes them more strong. And like in Distant Worlds Universe, they, the pirates actually there was a benefit to befriending them because you, they would bring in supplies and you could hire them to do missions. That content's not in there yet. I think they're hoping to put that in later. But at the moment, the pirates are just a pain. So yeah, just, just uh, yeah, there's a bit of advice. Just They're not as dead. They're not, the thing is you can get, you can, for the most part, unless the pirates are very strong, they're annoying, but you can just, you don't worry about them. Just they'll, they'll blow a few of your bases up every now and then. Like, you know, they'll harass your stuff, but you, you can just let, you can just not bother paying them. Eventually you'll get a fleet big enough to just kill them. But I, but I think for me, that's like a complaint I have is that if I, like I, the pirates did perform the function of pressure, but I, I think toward, I, I don't know. I had seen some guides and they're like, just buy them off and be an economic powerhouse. You'll have plenty of money. Don't worry about it. Too much. So I had done that, but I had no idea of knowing if it was good or bad. Like, in Dominions, if I do something bad, I'm going to start losing territory. Like the the rewards are, are the punishments are pretty fierce and immediate when you do something bad. And I, I guess that's, that's that's distant worlds all over. Though I think it's a slow paced yeah. game. You often don't know where you're at with the game for the you know. I mean, if you yeah. play with a pre warp start, you're playing for three or four hours really before often before you're really ever meeting anyone any other nation. Sometimes if you're playing on a big map, um, so it's a slow paced game, and I think it's. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm not defending Distant Worlds too necessarily. I, I think that the uh, the the game pacing needs some 
it might need some tweaking. I, I certainly don't think the pirates are particularly good. Well, well, tell me this: if you're if somebody's twice as strong, is like twice as advanced as you, twice as strong, like big a military, twice the territory, and they're in some distant part of the universe, do they win the game? Is that kind of how that's probably going to work? It depends on how you set the game up. So there's the victory conditions are set with a percentage. There's a, a series right. of percentages. So like percentage of the economy owned, the percentage of territory, percentage of galaxy, galactic population, that kind of stuff. And then um, optionally, you can add race-specific victory conditions, which is a cool thing, I think. So for example, the Tekken will want to uh, control a certain amount of the trade in the galaxy. Same with the Har- uh, Harkonish, who are also a kind of trade faction. Uh, whereas the Boscaro will want to win the most space battles. The Mortalin want to conquer the most planets, that kind of thing. So, um, but yes, you if you set another empire very high, or you know, they, you let you allow them to get higher ahead, they can win. Yeah. The thing is, it's it's difficult to lose in in distant worlds if you're putting it on all the basic settings. If you're a reasonably competent player, I'd say, um, unless you're really playing very very badly, I think you've got to set the game, you know, to be to be difficult and. That's probably one of the things that's, that, you know, like you say, there's an issue with these kind of games. It was the same thing with Shadow Empire as well. The game, those games are both so opaque to a new player that yeah. it takes dozens and dozens of hours to get to the point where you kind of know whether you're going to win or not. I mean, like, let's take something yeah. like Total War Warhammer. Like, what if, you what if you're playing a game? Sorry to interrupt. What, sure. what if you're playing a game where you're, let's say you played for eight hours, but you didn't even know it, but at four hours into it, you were checkmate. Because some other thing on the other side of the galaxy was just so snowballing so hard out of control that would you, suck in a that would suck in a puzzle game, but not in a sandbox game like distant world. Okay. I, I, what I was, what I was, yeah, you're right. I agree. I think that unless you set the game to be like that, that's not going to happen in distant worlds, generally speaking. So, like with the settings that I recommended in that video, that definitely will happen. In fact, you actually set one of the the empires to pretty much be close to winning it right at the start of the game. Um, the, the, the they will try to win. That's what I will say about Distant Worlds. However, I think unless you're asking for that experience, probably you're not going to see it unless you're playing dreadfully, unless you're trying to lose, really. But I, I don't know. I'm, I think with Distant Worlds Universe, that's certainly the case. With Distant Worlds 2, not quite sure yet. Even as a beta tester, I still don't feel like I've played it long enough yet to be really sure about that. I just feel like if you have, like how you interact with pressure is super important in a game. So like for that, like almost it would be like, and I'm a game designer, but it'd be like, what are the rankings? Am I climbing up the ranks or am I getting farther behind? And that would make, you know, every 30 minutes more dramatic if somehow you knew you were f- falling farther behind or getting closer ahead. I think I think Distant but, Worlds, just to speak about that game specifically, often with these Forex games, you'll find that a certain nation will snowball. Now, the way that games like Civilization dealt with that, eventually uh, in Civ Five, they decided that they were just going to make it so that the empires weren't going to try to win which really bugged me when I learned about it. But actually, now I've thought about it more. I think that, that it's, probably a good, it's probably a good way of doing things for a single-player game, right? Because yeah. I think that I'm, I'm not, I don't necessarily like that. I like, I, like, I like it when the AI kicks my ass, yeah? So if I play a game and I get absolutely wrecked, I'm laughing and going, yeah, this is great, you know? Mm-hmm. Not always, but 90% of the time, I'm like... Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, most of the time for me. I'm like, yes, you know, like, ah, find, find a game that's challenging. Unless it's just kicking your ass in a really, you know, like a really sort of unfun way. Like, for example, people are reporting with Warhammer 3 where they feel that the all of your opponents home in on the player, like player-centric <laughs> attacks. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I've not noticed that myself personally, but that is a really annoying thing. 
Like I, I remember Ray Fowler, who made Remnants of the Precursors, was saying, I could program an AI that should kick the player's ass, but would it be fun? You know? So it's like, I think there's, you've got to figure out how, when it comes to pressure, how to apply it. And is, like, for example, you're concerned that, you know, maybe you've got four hours into a game of Distant Worlds. You might say something like Shadow Empire, another game like that. You've got four hours into a game and you, you, you've you actually lost two hours ago. I think that that's, that's something that could happen with Shadow Empire. I think with Distant Worlds, I've yet to see it unless you're really trying to make that game play. So I think that that's got to be baked into the game de- game design. Well, I think with all, I mean, not just Distant Worlds, I think with all these games, right? Like if if you can, let's say it's an, it's an eight hour game and you're four hours into it, but you've already been checkmate for two hours. In other words, it was basically essentially unwinnable from two hours in, even if you were like a grandmaster player and you don't know it at four hours. I think that's a problem. Oh yeah. Like you should, if, if it's mission impossible and you want to keep fighting, that should be fine. But the way players interact with pressure should be such that you're getting that, like if you're having to wait an hour before you know whether your things are getting better or worse from a game state perspective, you know, that's probably that's a not problem. Good. That's probably a problem with sandbox games. I'd say. Yeah, I think I think that that's I think that good sandbox games like Distant Worlds Universe mitigated that somewhat by having this sliding scale of when for a start, when does victory conditions kick in? So you can say, okay, I don't want it to kick in for two hundred years of game time or fifty years right. or whatever. And then the other way of doing it is to change that sliding scale of at which percentage of galaxy, galactic domination do I consider myself the victor? Because I think if like Daz, uh, I was speaking to Daz about this and he was saying how Daz does, it, when, when he knows that he's won, he just stops playing basically. Right. So he, yeah. he doesn't same often, th- yes. Sorry, go ahead, Drex. No, I was just saying same with me. Sure. So like, I think, and I'm often the same. Um, I, I, if, if it's like I've got an hour to clean up and it's going to be fun, then I will. If it's going to be 10 hours to clean up, nah, what's the point, you know? And I think that knowing when a game is over is something that is easier to do in a puzzle-oriented game more than it is in a sandbox game. In a sandbox game, you probably want to bake in some way for the player to set when the game is over. And that, uh, having a sliding scale of, you know, is it 50% galactic domination is victory? Is it 70? You know, that gives the player some agency there, I think. and they're less likely to feel gypped if they, you know, like you say, you've been playing for five hours and then all of a sudden you come across this empire and it's just huge. I think, that, you know, that then you've got to kind of know the game mechanics a little bit and try and work around those. I don't think I know a Forex game where what Lucid was mentioning actually happened. I think, yeah, it's the opposite. You you get to a point where you kind of know you're going to be the winner of the game and I tend to restart the game at that point. But I don't think I've ever played a Forex game where, I might lose, I've already lost, but I'm playing on for four hours and not realising it. I don't uh, think most games would uh, would actually have it where they, like even Shadow Empire, right? I, I remember the first game I ever played of that. I was I thought I was doing really, really well. And then I came up against this Empire and he was kind of smaller than me. He had less territory because he was better at the game because I hadn't learned it yet. It absolutely wrecked me, right? Because I went to war with it. and he. So I'd lost at that point because his yeah. economy was so much stronger than mine. Um, now, could I have won it now with my knowledge? Sorry, can I just ask one question? Uh, with more with forex games, you tend to have a lot of intelligence on the enemy empire, but in, I don't really know Shadow Empire that well. Is that did that happen because you didn't realize how strong they were, and the game wasn't giving you the information? Like you're not able to scout their territory and stuff like that. 
in Shadow Empire specifically, you have spies. And once you get to a certain level of espionage, you can kind of see, you know, like you, you'll be able to place where their units are. And the more the, the the more spies you've got in their territory, the more accurate information you get. And it's really good, actually, the way that it works um, when it's when it's properly balanced, at least. Um, sometimes you feel that, you know, like if you've got a really strong spy master who's just so powerful that it just kind of makes the game easy mode because you can just see where everything is. So it's not perfectly balanced, to be honest, but when it works, it's, it is cool. What I meant to say was kind of, I think that the mark of a good game then is, is there a situation where you could take that game from noob Ben and give it to expert Ben, you know, and then like, you know, so the guy who's been playing it for two years down the line and say, okay, can you rescue this game for this noob? And if the answer is yes, then I think that that's a fair game. If the answer is no, you know, even the expert player can't fix that game at that point. That's kind of rare, I think. I think for the most part, like Lucid, you could probably fix most single-player Dominion's car crashes, couldn't you? Like, providing that it's not on some ridiculous, you know, artificial difficulty setting. Yeah, in single-player, probably. But in multiplayer, definitely not. Um, I mean, in multiplayer, there's just positions that are completely unwinnable. And I've definitely been it. I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what are the games where it's been checkmate? Like, I know Eodor's one where, like, I run into the AI and they've got, like, twice my levels and three Master times my economy and it's like you're done yeah master magic is one that's one that gets me the, so many so many times <laughs> and the adore's very uh, similar it's a similar game yeah i think they're yeah. those master of magic like fantasy 4x games often they are like master of magic i actually abandoned the series because people are like oh you're not going to finish that game and i'm like mate i'm I'm already dead you know that you know the, uh, the, the, the meme from what's it what's that um anime fist of the north star it's like, no, you're already dead, mate. <laughs> and I kind yeah. of, and I was able to identify that. And Sorry, anyway, carry on. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I, I think it happens a fair amount. It, it was interesting y'all were mentioning Civ Five. I didn't know they made it so that the empires couldn't win. But I was going to say about it is that I feel like the Civilization series does a really good job. Like I always felt in that, like, like the leaderboard mattered a lot. You know, like, I think every time you did a diplomatic interaction, you would see whether they were more powerful than you or not. Yeah. Like, Warhammer 2 is also like that, too. Like, whenever you interact with the diplomacy screen at all, you're seeing who's more powerful. And you're, like, your rank is... And you don't even have to be clicking on the screen to look at it. It's just, it's, like, constantly reinforced in Warhammer 2. Or, well, no. Yeah, yeah. 2. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's constantly reinforced, like, what your ranking was. And... You know, I, I guess in like a game like Warhammer, you ha- if you're really a good general or whatever with the tactics, you could maybe never die, right? But I feel like in that game too, you probably could have some nation snowball out of control and it's kind of over. Like all the humans confederate or whatever it is, or the dwarves, and you're like, oh shit. Yeah, there's the issue that they, co- they used to call the Order Tide, and it was where, you know, instead of the... Basically, because the chaos invasion happens in, in Warhammer 2, what happens is all the all the lawful sort of nations or the good nations, I suppose, if there is a good nation in Warhammer, all the, all the, you know, the dwarves and the elves and all that, they all can, they all get big positive bonuses because the chaos invasion happened because the chaos invasion is so weak and wimpy or it was, uh, they got beaten straight away, but then all of the, the good guys all have this massive diplo- diplomatic bonus. So they just, it, it, there was a stage of the game in development of Warhammer two, where it was just so broken because the, they called it the Order Tide, where just the humans and the dwarves and the elves, they just wiped everything out. It was, they were like the, the scourge of the Warhammer game. <laughs> it was so it's like the, the anti-apocalypse. Exactly, yeah, the Order Tide. It was great. But, That's hilarious. But I think it, like it, those, I think it, 
it's it's so important with the pressure, you know, like how is the game because that's how you know some of it goes back, I think, to like primitive learning. You know, I don't know if this is a really weird side topic, but have any of y'all ever heard of clicker training with dogs? Yeah, vaguely. Vaguely. Yeah. So basically, you know, you want to give a dog a treat, it looks at you, it spins around in a circle, it sits down, it stands up, it wags its tail, it, it pants for a little bit. Oh, and yeah. And then you yeah, give yeah, it a yeah. treat, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like everybody recognizes that's how dogs do their treats. The thing is, that's all at some level, it's like subconscious superstition for dogs because they're like, these are all the things, like on one hand, they're excited, but on the other hand, these are all things that they do to elicit getting a treat from you, right? Like it's all part of like a ritual dance. And what clicker training basically does is it lets, instead of like this big, long kind of like four player anticipation of getting the treat, it lets the dog know with this, like a snap, this is the exact moment I'm rewarding you. The second you hear this click from me, you know you've done something good. And I feel like that's one of the problems in a big 4X game is you're so far away from the fact, like you can be. I think some do it well and some don't. You can be so far away from the reward signal, you don't actually know if the strategies you put in place were good or not. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like, it's like, how do you, like, when you're interacting with pressure, like you, if you're going to learn from it, you you want that, coupling to be kind of close so like i do something and i see i've gotten better i do something i know i got worse like but if i do something and like 30 minutes later i find out oh i'm about the same but a little bit worse than i was before like what well which of the things that that i did were good and which of the things that i did were bad you know it's like you have to open up like a congressional investigation to figure out what the hell happened that's true it would also ruin games like War in the East, though, wouldn't it? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, when you've got these really big, long strategy games, and often, it, particularly about games that are kind of about war of attrition, or, you know, like like games like Dominions, I don't really want to know, I don't want immediate feedback necessarily, because I, I think that part of the fun of those games is the fog of war. And Drexy was yeah. talking about this earlier, like he was saying that, like, well, he was alluding to this, like there's there's a fog of war, right, that goes on in multiplayer games and in more complex 4x kind of games and the the fog of war doesn't necessarily just blanket out physical territory around you it's also it's like a veil over over you being able to predict the future depending on what action you take right and Mm -hmm. i think that having that kind of fog of war is important so there's going to be some feedback that's going to be denied to you as part of the game i think yep i think if the point uh, but i think if the game itself is so opaque that you are unable to get much feedback because this is one of the initial, I I saw loads of criticism about Shadow Empire, very fair criticism as well, that they weren't really getting, they weren't knowing, understanding what was going on enough to be able, you know, for hours often to really know where they were going with it. And then suddenly, oh, your economy crashes game over, you know, and that that wasn't, that wasn't fun for some people. And, you know, I think if you're the sort of person who really likes digging into game mechanics, you could have, Okay, well, for me, for example, I've just played for 10 hours. Damn it, I've lost. Oh, well, I'll just start again because that was exciting because at least I learned something. But not everybody's like that. So I think every human being's got a different threshold for when the when the click needs to come, you know. Can I ask a question to you both? We were speaking about games like uh, RimWorld and, I mean, even games like Blood Bowl where you have random events. When When do they, when are they fun and when are they just, so annoying you never want to play the game what what's the balance in them and what's their place in games is it only certain types of games that should have this or is this open to i I don't know really what i'm trying to say i mean i guess 
I find random events can be really good at sort of at injecting a bit of excitement and new things for you to new challenges for you in a lot of games. There is a whole podcast in this topic, I think. Just quickly, I think that random event, random, you know, RNG, as people would call it, is great, providing that the game is is there to support it. It has to be baked into the game mechanics. So people felt very cheated in XCOM, you know, in, the, in Firaxis XCOM, when they saw that the shot was 95% and then they fail it. Not realizing that, you know. Yeah. Like that's actually quite, you know, if you fire enough shots, you're going to get, sometimes you can get big strings of bad luck. I remember when I was, I made a little program to show somebody like how foolish it was to do. I don't know if you know in roulette, if you play roulette, there was one tactic that people were using where you just constantly bet on one color, like red or black. And, you know, you start like the, the, the amount of money that you're having to bet is going up and up and up, but eventually you're going to get a red. Well, I, I made this little piece of code simple code that showed them that if you roll the dice enough times or if you roll you spin the wheel enough times you can get big long strings like i think if you spin it a million times you quite frequently get 30 you know 20 or 30 reds in a row so it's really not that good odds right and so it's the same with things like games like xcom like it seems like it's you know oh man that was 90 98% chance to hit but it failed oh, the game's broken, it cheats. It's like, no, nah, it's just how numbers work. <laughs> it's the law of large numbers, unfortunately. And I think that Blood Bowl is an example of a game where the, the, it's all the rules are based around dice rolls. Everything that you do, every action that you take other than moving, basically, is a dice roll. And the game is about stacking the odds in your favor and figuring out what, what risks you can take and what you can't. And that game, is, that's one of my favorite games, by the way. I think that's one of the best games ever made. Like, it's my favorite two-player game. I think it's just genius. It's an absolute genius game. But some people hate it because you know they're running with the, they've got the they've got the ball and they're running for the touchdown and they've got no rerolls left and they make they go for it you know go for it is where you have to roll a anything but a one to make to move that extra square because you're sprinting and then they roll the one and they drop the ball and they lose the game and then they like I had a, a guy one of my old friends when we were teenagers he literally picked the blood bowl board up and threw it across the room he was so angry <laughs> and like so like some people just cannot handle that. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that it works when it works, but it's got to be baked into the game. Um, I, I I can think of like three types of randomness. So one type is like the Warhammer 2 type where you get some event that pops up. You have two options and they have different consequences, but it, they kind of don't matter a ton. And you just kind of pick whichever one you think is best. And that's like light. It's fast. You do it and the game moves on. It's not core to the game mechanic, right? It's just kind of like spicing things up a little. Then I think you have stuff like Blood Bowl or like Battle for Westnoth where they're both very RNG dependent in how the tactics all play out. And having good or bad RNG at different times can make for very interesting game states that basically there's a kind of cool story behind. You know, like, I thought this was going to happen, and then this did, and then this is how I reacted. And that's kind of interesting if that's what you're into, but some people don't like that much RNG in a tactics game, right? And then I think the final kind is kind of like the RimWorld kind, where the event system is largely responsible for generating the types of situations you have to sort your way through. So, you know, like probably like in dominions, for example, like having like the big story events, like events are probably one of the cooler parts of dominion. Like it creates a bunch of randomness, random stuff you have to interact with, but at some level, just the AI is choosing to attack you is also like a bad event, you know, and that generates the, the whole so I don't know, I guess, I guess in some ways the randomness, random events, they're all just ways to in- introduce game states for the players to have to sort out. 
if it's done well, it can. I think um, what a lot of games need. I've never. Is there any game that strategy game that allows like a dungeon, uh, Dungeons and Dragons type DM? Because playing a uh, Dungeons and Dragons, you have the the game master who can inject these. Uh, is always injecting these random things, but it's kind of he can balance it to the actual game and the players. I don't. Would that be possible for an AI to do? I don't know, to be honest. But that would be, could you imagine RimWorld and being able to play in your friend's game as like a game master? Well, I was going to say Lim- RimWorld Probably is... Probably a good way to ruin a friendship. <laughs> I think RimWorld tries to do that. That's what, that's what RimWorld's AI is trying to do. It's trying to be a dungeon master. The only game that I know that actually lets you have a dungeon master is... Uh, do you know... Divinity Original Sin 2 has a has a Oh right, yeah, yeah. That allows you to basically play Dungeons and Dragons but using their game engine. So you can so you can have a DM, they can build a map. I mean, I, I don't know if that's quite what you were after, but yeah, I think yeah. I think uh, you know that that allows you literally to have a you know a player being the Rimworld kind of storyteller and throwing the events at you. Yeah, I mean I think uh, RNG and ran, you know random Random content in games, I think, is a podcast on its own. It's such a, I mean, it's so it's so big. It's one of the things as well that really, really annoys a lot of people. I see, like, I, I rue the day that Steam, that the Steam community at large, learned the, the term RNG because for a few years it seemed like everything was getting blamed on RNG. It was one of these kind of like a literal meme that was going through the Steam community where whenever they, a game wasn't to their liking in some way, it was like RNG's fault and. Man, it, ground, it grinds my gears because it's like Lucid kind of touched on this, but I think that in a game, when you gave the example of games like Blood Bowl or Wesnoth, tactical games, you know, where there's a, there is some kind of random element to it, I, I think that's a great leveler of it's like the great leveler for skill levels. But good players will still consistently win because they understand the odds, and it's not always about odds, but they understand the systems. But it allows, for example, let's say that uh, you know. Uh, Drexy and Lucid are fighting in Dominions. Lucid's the more experienced player, but uh, let's say Drexy catches him, you know, in a situation where he's not able to overwhelm him or, or or hit him with some kind of Lucid tactics Jedi trick. Right? The fact that there's RNG gives Drexy or Lucid a good opportunity to win because you might well, just have a whole bunch of bad dice rolls. Now the law almost, of large- sorry, this almost did happen in the game we played against each other. Do you remember when we fought and your God retreated into a second army of mine. You did actually oh, win, yeah. but that, that was actually quite fun. And you wasn't sure whether you were gonna, your God was gonna die because of that. Yeah, that was strange. <laughs> yeah. That was a weird interaction. So to, to bring this this like back into you know the kind of the, you know, what we were talking about with what makes an interesting like an engaging game. I think these novel situations, and this is part of RNG, right? Novel situations are really really important as well because. Um, you don't get much novelty in chess, not unless the cat jumps on the board and knocks everything over. Um, but there are certain games where things can happen and you are not expecting it and it really throws your game plan out. And I think that's one of the things that 4X games can be very good at if they're, if they're programmed right. What do you think to that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting way to frame it because if you look at it more as like novel situations, then if you have a complicated game, you have more different kinds of novel situations that can present themselves, right? Because there's way more permutations of all the things that can. And at some level, 
that's basically what multiplayer is, right? Is players acting like dungeon master, you know, <laughs> giving the other person a bunch of novel situations for them to react to. And yeah, I think that's an interesting way to frame it. It's like, and I think that actually gets it like, I think that's probably like one of the most core things of a good strategy game is how do you have interesting novel situations that are going to test the player? It kind of reminds me, this is a bit off topic, but in EVE Online, you have these people that have finally been become to be known as content creators, which are leaders of whatever alliances you're in or, or corporations who, to try and keep the player base, they come up with conflicts like for example, they'll they'll make up a story that uh, we're going to fight these guys because they did X, Y, and Z, and it may not be actually true. But like, you know, we, you had a big war in Eve Online a few years ago against the Goon Squad. Who, you used uh, a B as a logo, and the opposition's leader name was Killer B. So he ended up be called hmm. he ended up calling the world World War B. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird stuff like that, you know, where the players in multiplayer games almost become the content creators. How much more interesting is that, though, than, say, the scripted events that, that are what they called Frontier come up with for, like, Elite Dangerous? So they they, they okay, right, we're going to create this scripted event where everyone, all the players are going to go through it. Now, they kind of work, all right, because they give you a little bit more new content, but it, it because it's contrived, right? You you kind of feel that it's artificial. You you kind of feel that artificiality. Whereas with you know the example you just gave us with Eve, it's kind of fun because it's you know you know that it's basically players have done that. You know, it's not necessarily it's not been manufactured by a games developer in order to artificially keep play, people playing a little bit. It's it's artificially manufactured by players, <laughs> and yeah. it just kind of feels a little bit more organic. In that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, one thing we were having a discussion about um, in Galactic Civilizations Four. You have this screen where it doesn't happen until the player chooses it. They're kind of like end game crises, and there's a different. There's like, I don't know. There's a whole set of them. That I mean, this was um, to do with the problem with when you get to a certain stage in a four X, and you know you're going to win. Well, Stardock's system in uh, GC four to count this is adding extra challenges into the game, but you choose when those challenges come to the game. So, example, you might press a button and suddenly, like, a bunch of aliens come out of the fourth dimension and start attacking anyone. Do you think that's a good system, or do you think that's a bit too contrived? Uh, so this is very much like in SimCity, where you have the Godzilla button. I, I actually, I, I did, I've not listened to the whole podcast, but I did edit the, the last part of the one that you've just done with Derek Pack, And I thought here's explanation was quite interesting for why they chose to do that i think basically players don't really like it when an end game scenario is forced on them that get ends their game so for example in stellaris i think you know with some of the the game i remember very early on in stellaris where they when uh, they had the game ending sort of you know apocalypse events at the end and then you have these things just come through like a dimensional rift and just start tearing through the galaxy until you know how to deal with them they can be i think some fl- players can find that very very frustrating so it's a way of protecting sandbox-oriented people from feeling like their game has been ruined by excessive pressure. So by basically saying, okay, well, here's the game end button. Now you get to push it. 
Um, it feels very gamey to me. So, but I, I find I find that all of Galaxy Four feels very board gamey like, and that doesn't yeah. mean that, that I dislike it. I think it's I think it's actually a really nicely made game. But um, I think if you're an immersion type sandboxy kind of type person, it's going to feel a bit too gamey, maybe. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's a novel way. I, I think rather than having the you know the Godzilla button, I think there's a better way of doing it. I, I think rather than just you know just you go okay, well now I feel like I'm ready. So because what Derek Paxton said was he said it was a nice reward for a player who felt like you know they've hit that part of the game where they've got seventy percent of the galaxy conquered. They know they're going to win the rest. But now here's something really, really hard that you get to choose to do. And if it ends your game well, so be it. But if it, you know, if you if you complete it, well, it's like a nice little achievement. And I like the idea behind that, in, in theory at least. I think it's a really, I think it's a nice idea. I just think some people might find it immersion breaking. Well, there's not always like a end game button. Some of them was like, a, I think he said that you, you can make a quest of like if you find these certain artifacts in the in the game, it made you. Uh, super powerful so you could be losing but if you complete this quest it could actually make you strong enough to deal with whoever's at the top of the game i I, I don't know i found it a very interesting idea even as a just like a self-challenge an extra challenge in the game yeah I, i haven't played with that at all so i don't i don't really know but i i'm personally of the opinion too i guess like daz said which is you know the game's over when i say it's over i don't have any issue with that if i've won i don't want to play another hour to to mop things up most of the time yeah but um you know you know if there's a a way you can spawn the little final thing that seems fun too but then if you make that final thing really hard and the final thing's going to kill you but if you sat there and ground it out for another hour then you'd be able to kill it maybe some people want to do that i don't know if i particularly would i mean i think like if you look at this through the lens of like novel situations like okay it's a novel situation does it test your understanding of does it test your ability to use the game systems to, to you know, pretty well? To come up with creative ways to use the game systems to, to walk your way out of it? Maybe. I mean, if it's the same in-game threat or like one of five different in-game threats and the solution is always you need to have a fleet that's of about 50,000 strength and you're only at 30,000, so you need to grind it out to 50. I don't know. That doesn't sound super interesting to me, but I, I have no idea how it's actually implemented. Um, but I don't know. I guess that's kind of like the like this gets back at like very basic things about game design, which is if the solution is just grind it out and get 20,000 more fleet strength, that's not a very interesting system, you know. But if I mean, if that's what your game's about is having a bigger fleet and then going and beating stuff up, there's not much to do about it. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what the you know, I mean, if there's a time pressure, now it becomes more interesting, right? Because how do you get a 50,000 power fleet? in the next 20 minutes, you know, that might be impossible or very difficult. And you might have to like really think hard about how you're going to do it. But if it's just like put it, put the game in fast forward and then click the button when you have 50,000 fleet strength, now, I'm making all these numbers up. You know, now, now you're trying to, you're throwing a puzzle at, at a player who is, you're trying to appease with that kind of sandboxy oriented solution. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, sandbox people, don't want their game to end so let's give them the button to end the game but now let's give them some massive time pressure on top of it <laughs> they're gonna hate that <laughs> yeah well they'll hate it right so it's like what do you do i and there's probably not a right answer but i think like we're, we're probably getting a little late on time and like to to wrap up some of my thoughts because i think i can kind of package them together now 
is that, you know, pressure. So maybe it's best to start with the novel situations, novel situations that test your understanding of systems um, is, I think, probably that can come like multiplayer is probably the best way to create those novel situations. But, you know, in lieu of that, there's all sorts of ways to do that in single. And you need feedback, either micro feedback, like I won a battle, right? Or macro feedback, like I have moved up in the empire ranking, you know, so that you're getting that reward from handling the situation. You know, like you need to know if you're winning or losing. Like that's part of the basic dopamine feedback loop. And then, but the pressure is really important. So if you don't want to over challenge, I mean, you don't want it, the pressure so intense that you have to min max it or the only people that are going to enjoy it are the spreadsheet people that want to come up with the one build that's going to work, right? But you want to pressure enough where you can't do anything, right? You have to come up with something clever, right? And I think that's all like a, a whole thing, right? Like how do you come up with these novel situations that have interesting kind of things the player is going to have to figure out? And if they can figure it out, which there's probably many different ways they could go to, to solve it, then they're going to get have something good happen to them or avoid something bad. So I think games that do that well are probably going to be really fun to play. Um, how do you think the other about, oh, I was just going to say just quickly, um, Conquest of Elysium 5 is a really good game for that kind of thing where it throws you some situation and then you've got like a limited amount of time to be able to figure it out. I just thought that might be a, I know that you're not the biggest fan of the Conquest of Elysium series, but for me, that was a game that really kind of got me into that kind of thinking because before I was very much, a, you know, I need to be challenged. I need to win. I need to, I need a, the best AI that can challenge me. And that game really taught me to chill out and enjoy the sandboxy role play aspects of games a little bit, but still it has that pressure in there if, like every now and again with some of the events. Yeah, I mean, I think with Conquest of Elysium, um, I mean, there's some mods that a buddy and I made that I think made it play a little bit better. But um, I think a lot of it, too, is like visibility. Like you need to be able to see enemies coming to you. Like there's something like you can just have somebody come up and take your stronghold and you lose. And that's not very fun or interesting. And so then you need to scout. But scouting is like not economical. And the vision range is really small. And there's stealthy stuff. And so it's fun. I think it. I don't know. It's very hot, heavy on like the go with. It's kind of what you were saying. It's like go with the flow, you know, because like it's not going to be fair. You're not going to be able to see what's coming, what's going to ruin you. It's just going to happen. You know, uh, sorry, you Lucid, I, I feel like I, th I threw you off your course as well with that comment. <laughs> but um, you, you were going to wrap up with. Uh... Oh, and I think the, the final thing for me is uh, we were talking about it all uh, in different games here, but oh, and maybe it was before the discussion or before we started recording, but always having something meaningful to do, you know, like, like, I think if you have a game that's giving you novel situations that is giving you feedback on whether you do well or poorly in those, and there's some pressure, but not so much that it doesn't force you to min max or, you know, not to basically not be creative. Like the pressure should make you be creative, not make you not be creative. Right. Yeah. And if those things exist and you always have something kind of meaningful to do that you feel is meaningful, that's going to impact the game state, I think then you probably have a pretty good for it or strategy game. Yeah, I, I agree with that, really. I think, yeah, a game has to throw things at you that are not impossible. Well, at the start, maybe when you're beginning the game, it's it seems impossible. But as you become uh, more creative in the game and understanding the systems, then you'll be, a you'll be able to overcome those challenges. The game needs to be able to throw challenges, even at the most experienced player, that they they have to work out new ways on how to overcome these problems. I think that's actually quite a difficult thing for game design, especially in a sandbox game. 
for game designers to come up with. Well, you have to think too, like, how are you going to solve the problems, right? So like you had, you had mentioned our Dominions game where you had to, somebody was going to be doing poison damage and you knew there were a bunch of steps you needed to take to be able to fix that problem, right? But if you're fighting like a, you're a single ship or you have a fleet of ship, or, you know, if you're a single ship and you have a loadout and it's like a role-playing space game and you have a bunch of missiles and you run into something that's immune to missiles, like that's not, like <laughs> there's not much of a game there, you know? So it's like, you have to always ask yourself, like, what information am I giving the player? And then how can they respond? Like, at some level, they should be able to do stuff right. to interact with the challenge you've presented to them. So if they can switch up their weapon systems, if that's a financially practicable thing to do before they go take this challenge and they kind of have an idea what's going to be there, you know, that might be a fun way to diversify the game is have stuff that's immune to missiles. And then they have to like, or, you know, highly resistant. They have to like come up with the plan for how they're going to deal with it. but. You know, if the players don't have the ability to do that, then it's not fun. Like, like imagine Dominions, if there were armies that had poison stuff that would just wipe your whole army if you didn't have poison resistance. Like and there's no way to get poison resistance. Like Master of Magic's like that. I think yeah. It's, it's kind of, I think it's, at what point of play do you, uh, or sorry, what level of experience is required by the player in order to be able to know what to do next? That's another question you've got to ask because... For example, Master, we were talking about this before, Lucid um, and Drexy. We were all talking about Master of Magic ages ago. And we were saying how we kind of felt that it's a little bit brutal on new players. In fact, it's brutal on new players. You really have to get dozens of hours in it, really, to be able to know how to play it. And then once you do, it's fun. I mean, it's fun anyway, but Caster of Magic particularly is really, really tough. And you've got to just play it repeatedly to really see all the stuff that the AI can throw at you. Because it really it is one of those games where you know, you, you feel like you're prepared for something and then it throws in an army and you just literally cannot touch it. Like it, you're, it's invulnerable to right. everything that you have. And then how, like, there's not a lot of gamers that will stick with the game through that over and over again. You've got to be a glutton for punishment and to be really like, no, I know this is a good game, so I want to figure it out. I, th- I think that there's there's a level, isn't there, where people, most people switch off. They're like, nah, man, this is stupid. Like, I'd, I'd, if I want to play Dark Souls, I'll play Dark Souls. Well, but Dark Souls is fun because the each each iteration between you dying, sorry, between you starting fighting the boss and dying comes quite quickly. Whereas in a strategy game, you know, <laughs> imagine, imagine playing Elden. It's like a two-hour build-up. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like playing Elden Ring, but the loading times are eight hours in between each in between each <laughs> yeah. attempt. That's not going to be fun. <laughs> I think this is a modern problem, though. The more games there are and the more access people have to games, I have seen sort of a trend to games being less punishing. Like you're talking about Master of Magic. At the time Master of Magic came out, you know, <laughs> you didn't really have much options to play things. So even players who weren't as good would spend more time in that game to work out that if that came out today, they'll just go, oh, fuck this, I'll go and play Civilization instead because that doesn't, <laughs> you know. You can look at any type of game. You can look at, like, uh, from the Quake days to when uh, the more realistic shooters came out, where p- players, newbie players, could get easy headshots. Whilst in Quake, you could easily see a game where if a experienced player vers- played versus an in- inexperienced player, the score would be like fifty to minus a hundred and <laughs> minus ten. But those back in the day, people would play against someone who would beat them by fifty and slowly get better because they couldn't just 
load up another game and go and play that. I think that's that is kind of a problem with making difficult games in this day. It's too easy for people just to go and play something that's easier rather than spend the time with this harder game that actually, in the end, if they spend the time with it, is more rewarding. It's like, why are these kids today? They don't know how good <laughs> no, they've got it. I sound like a bloody granddad, don't I? <laughs> these kids today. Back in they, my day. <laughs> back, in, back in my day, we used to eat wooden rocks. and like we had to, <laughs> You couldn't move on to a different game. There were no other games. <laughs> there were no other games. No, but it's true. I mean, I, I think that I mean, we've kind of moved off the topic a little bit. But yeah, lack of attention span and a desire to have instant gratification is a real problem in, in modern games, particularly in AAA games now. I mean... I'm talking about Elden Ring, and though I like it. I'm really enjoying it, actually, because I really like Souls games. And it is easier than the others if you use a lot of the help. But to be honest, I think they've made some good design decisions there because they've kind of, they've, they, they are making it easier for newer players to get into it, but they, they're not making it so the game's easier for everyone. It's just there's certain crutches that you're given that you don't have to use if you're an experienced Souls player. And I think that that can be done in strategy gaming too. It's like, don't make, you know... Games don't need to be instantly gratifying. And I think one of the, re- the things that unites us as 4X game players or strategy game players is that we've usually got a little bit more pen- patience and attention, you know, and willingness to kind of try things if they're not working. It's a, it's a, I'm kind of with Drexy here. I think it's, it's a worrying sign when, if that starts coming into strategy gaming where everybody's got to be gratified and easily pleased immediately. Um, you know, I think it's... It, Without getting too political, it's part of a greater problem we've got in the world at the moment with people really not liking being challenged, shall we say. Yeah, but I mean, you can even take Dark Souls as an example of something modern that's kind of done that. Again, at the time when Dark Souls came out, there wasn't anything else like it. So players didn't really have an easier option to go to. But of course, as that's gone on, people have done Souls-like games. And, you know, now they do. And you're saying Elden Ring is like Dark Souls, but easier. And is that because they have to make it like that now? I'm not really sure. I think it's. I don't think it's necessarily easier. I think it's just easier if you use the tools that they've given you if you want to use them. So they've just given you the, you know, like they've made it so right. But Dark Souls didn't give you those tools. That's what I'm saying. They've yeah, had okay. to give tools for people who don't want to be as punished as much, but want to play. I think that's a money thing. I think that's a money thing. I think that they know that. If they can make it more accessible to more people, they're going to make more money. But they've done the right thing because they've kind of done it in a way that still allows players who are experienced with the series to be able to challenge themselves by not using all the helper stuff. That you, I don't really know how that translates with you know sandboxy games. Well, coming back to to the Master of Magic example, where you have some army show up and it just is. It's not only stronger than you; it's immune to you. <laughs> you know, yeah. like. And you just lose the game after two. You got it like a, a four hour load time to find out you've lost. I think that's bad game design in a way like and not necessarily for Master of Magic. But I, in my opinion, like the answer should be pretty straightforward. Like, oh, well, you should have scouted that they were making those. You didn't scout what they, why the, that they were making those. Then like then you're an idiot, right? Like yeah. you this is what you should have done if if you can't say that because it's like scouting isn't practical or what have you, and you have no way of knowing what the AI is going to do or what they're going to come, and it's just like one turn, all of a sudden, a doomstack shows up and you die. Like that's that's not super satisfying. So I think it gets back to this idea, if we just reduce it, like abstract it out, that novel situations are presenting themselves, and 
it's going to test your understanding of the systems for whether you can deal with them. So a big part of that is, I think in these strategy games is having visibility. And that's kind of what I was hitting at a little bit about like our leaderboard or, you know, other things is that like, you need to be able to see how you're doing or what you're going to face. So if I basically there needs to be means to collect information efficiently so that you don't get completely so that you shouldn't normally be getting completely bamboozled by stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or that the game is such that you, you know, you, you there's a there's a sort of understandable trajectory that you have to work through and you you kind of have guide points as you know you know by such and such a turn that you need sure. to be roughly like at this kind of level i think that i think i i don't i don't need games to pander to me to the point where i need to be able to win them straight away every single time so i need visibility over everything i like the fog of war i think yeah. that i think that if a game after 40 or 50 hours of playing is still throwing stuff at you that kills you you know, like Master of Magic Army of flying invisible battleships. If that, if it's still doing that thing after forty or fifty hours, then there's a problem. Like, because I, I don't, I, I like to be bamboozled by stuff when I'm learning a game. Actually, I think it's fun. It's like, wow, holy crap, it can do that. But to me, that's a wonder. And I'm, I'm not too proud to have my ass kicked. Um, so I, I don't mind that for a bit. But I think that there, there comes a time when you've been playing the game for a while where you start feeling all right. I feel like I should know this game now, but it's still doing stuff that is just destroying me and I don't know why. Then, you know, there's there's kind of there's got to be some play basically between like your your level of experience and what it's doing to you. Yeah. You need to have a like if you if you get completely wrecked by something, you, there needs to be a good learning you can take from it at least. Sure. You know, like but if the game doesn't provide you a learning, not like provide you like they have to hand it to you, right? But like I mean, like Let's let's say there was a space 4x and on turn 100 distant thing you've never like you thought you were doing great but on turn 100 something you've never met won the game like and you had no way of reaching them you know that i mean that some of this would have had to be like how you set the world up or things like that but or you know some huge army portals in i don't know th- basically as long as the game has the systems for you to learn and to improve your your play so that you're going to either scout that something's coming or scout that something's happening and you can interact with it. Like that's fun, but stuff you can't see that all of a sudden checkmates you is probably dicey. Yeah. It's got to, if it's, if we're going to have novelty, it's got to be fun novelty, basically not like punishing novelty is fine, but right. punishing novelty has to be balanced with, you know, either it's teaching you somehow. That's right. why dark souls works so well. It's always teaching you. So if on in the in the better games in the series like they're constructed so carefully to teach you how to play it as you go and if you're attentive you'll see that it's doing that and i think that that's that's something that is probably more difficult to do in a strategy game i think without very contrived tutorials and that. anyway guys it's been a great discussion and i think i feel like we could go on all night and um but yeah <laughs> maybe we have to come back to this topic sometime i think we initially intended it just to be a single thing but i mean really the, the topic's so big we've only really covered this whole kind of sandbox versus puzzle and pressure kind of idea and i think that we've gone quite deep with that and it's really thrown up some interesting top, uh, conversations but yeah we're gonna have to end it here guys thank you so much for joining me it's been really really good fun to chew the fat with you and just discuss discuss game development game design and talk about our favorite games a little bit Drexy, it's always a pleasure and lucid it's, it's always great to chat to you too sir thanks for having me on fun talking with both of y'all yeah thanks guys that was a really really good i really loved that uh discussion Perhaps uh, if we can, we need to get Rob on for this one as well. Like he's he's 
not been dodging us. He's just been busy. He's got a lot going on at the moment, and he's we've we've actually done quite a lot of podcasts recently. So he's basically made some of the more you know the the ones that we'd already scheduled. But if we can try and get Rob back, I think we should we should have a you know come back and talk about this some more at some point. I think this very topic is really interesting, and I think that we're you know people like to hear this. We've had some good feedback about these kind of episodes too. So if you guys are up for it, perhaps another time we can come back and we'll have a bit of a chat. Let's get someone like Daz or Eric uh, Tortuga Power. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Okay, guys, this is Ben, Stuart, and Lucy. For... <laughs> so, this, sorry, the reason why I say that is because I'm looking at this screen and Drexy's got his name on there for books. <laughs> this is uh, Battle Mode, Drexy and Lucid for Explorminate. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Keep exploring, guys. Take care.